Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's fantastic as always to say fantastic as always and it's great to say great and it's a, well, amazing to say amazing. I am so thrilled because as you may know these things happen in different orders of release. I'm talking about the episodes and as I'm speaking at this point today and I spoke about speaking into the future and it's rained in Bangalore. and it's beautiful um it and in fact the first couple of rains are it's mental right i think every year it gets worse and not going down the path of global warming but it's just mental because it just seems like the heavens have come apart at the seams and like this hail there's shit falling and yeah every year it seems that the city can't fight back as much it just seems like less and less uh is able to bring the city to a standstill and yeah yesterday was one of those days it took me i think i was at a friend's place had to go drop my wife and my baby off at uh, my wife's parents house and then come back home. I think a trip which typically takes about 15 minutes, it's all off maybe 3 kilometers. Took me an hour and 40 minutes, which was great because I planned for it. I took a pee before. I took a pee in the bees. I took no, I took a pee in my friend's house thinking I'll be all sorted. And by the time I reached home I was bursting. I was bursting at the seams, man. but who am i to complain there were people who had a shittier time and but why shouldn't i complain because my problems are also as important right maybe it was a problem with a um, little less severity maybe i was privileged enough not to have more problems but it's still a fucking problem and i'm going to say i had a problem so you better take it for what it is and what are you going to do about it hmm well there is something that every time i read certain things that pop up to my head right like uh, this 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 particular guy he i don't know his name you know i i don't keep details as my primary focus but it's a story which was interesting right and i i read sometimes uh, articles sometimes i read the news and i pretty much do it every day but this guy who's in the gurkha 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 regiment in the british army he from nepal he lost his legs in afghanistan i'm sure you read the story um he lost his legs to an id and um he of course um you know was discharged and he had to have surgery and the post surgery i'm i'm dramatizing a little not dramatizing but i'm explaining a little bit because uh just to give you a little context so of course he went through post recovery and went to a lot of lot of lot of dejection and it's shit man to lose something especially when it's part of your body right like uh, there's something which i don't um want to undermine at the same time i can't sort of relate but i can in some way because his was of course in the call of duty he had to go into a situation which was of course um well he was trained for it but no one really wants to sort of you know say hey you know it's okay because you know you're a soldier but it's a shit to lose something and this the, the reason it sort of struck a chord with me is like when you lose something whether it's intentionally or by accident or it's something which is a natural cause or whether it's something which happens beyond your control um uh, it i kind of i i feel for the guy because you know as as a kid when this condition happened to me uh, and i'm not going to make this about myself it's just that you you feel a sense of like fuck betrayed by your body right because you don't really expect like okay you 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 i'm not saying losing someone or losing a friendship losing someone you love isn't isn't is, is easy but when it happens to your own body it it's just such a profound sense of loss uh which is not uh comparable to uh the loss of someone but it's a different kind of loss which takes a lot more um i think 
introspection and also there's a lot of not just why me but there's a lot of like fuck uh, reshaping your mindset to kind of make um, make life make sense because it's almost like okay if this can happen what's next and also working from a place of okay and it's easy to say right like in hindsight like yeah you know I just said let me see what I have in life and work with that but imagine you know, taking for granted, we all take for granted the fact that we have our senses, right? The ability to sense, uh, smell and see and hear and walk and talk. And and and, and I can only imagine how hard it must have been for him, it, despite the fact that he was trained for a combat situation, to, to kind of deal with this. And he had, of course, huge amounts of uh, pain and loss and depression. And of course, the coping mechanisms kick in, drugs, alcohol, I don't know what he used. But the story I'm getting to is this guy decided, uh, I think he at some point wanted to be uh, on the top of the world at Mount Everest as a climber. And of course, when something like this happens to you, it shatters your dreams. And and, the, the, and there's a lot of things for people who grow up in countries like Tibet and Nepal uh, and even Pakistan. When you see these uh, huge range of mountains, I've never been. Um, it must be amazing, right? And we always say, oh, people like Edmund Hillary or uh, George Mallory climbing up. And man, balls... It takes a lot of balls, not not balls to them, but it takes a lot of balls to travel across continents to come and do this, especially in the early 1900s when you're like, yeah, I'm going to take a boat for three months and go up to this place where no one has ever gone. And of course, at that point, the Sherpas, I think, did, but there was absolutely no mapping of these territories. There was absolutely no idea of terrain, idea of conditions, and it was just amazingly fucking gutsy, these guys. Uh, but now, apparently, I, I, you know, again, this is all through reading. Uh, it's, it's, it's just become a thoroughfare. It's just become clogged with people. You pay money, you're not trained well enough. You just go up there because you think, you know what, I can take a selfie, put it up on Instagram, hashtag on top of the world, hashtag... Chomalungma or whatever they want to put up as hashtags, wander, travel bug, fucking crazy shit. And as a result, people who are genuinely trained, genuinely interested get cock block. And you have these huge lines, weather kicks in, people are, you know, people die on the side, they're not able to clear the body. So it's just, as we humans do everything so well, we go and fuck it up and leave a shitload of garbage, we destroy whatever we touch. And the people, not everyone, because there are people who genuinely have gone before, have come back, even the locals who respect that. And of course, it is a respect kind of activity, right? You build this bond with, uh, whether it's people who go extreme sports in the ocean, extreme sports on land, mountain climbing. And I honestly am more of a land-based person, and this is something. And I think respecting the elements is something which is so um, important in these things. And of course, if you're one of these people who does this, I'd love to hear your opinion, whether it, it sort of is along the lines of what I'm saying or it's something completely different, contrary to my views. Uh, but I, I don't know. It's it's just quite quite crazy. So this guy wanted to climb the mountain. And, and I like climbing, but I, I don't ever think that I will have the commitment or the dedication to train, to um, kind of go through those conditions, to go to even, say, a 5,000-meter or a 6,000-meter peak, which is quite high in itself. Um, uh, because... I don't know. I, I I don't know if I can do free diving. That's the, I'm not scared of the water, but Jaws fucked it up for me, dude. I don't know if you watched that movie. I can barely get into a pool now without thinking of this huge shark coming in. Um, so every time in the ocean, something touches my feet. I'm like, ah, Jaws. I know it's stupid, but hey, call me stupid. And let's get back to the guy whose story we're talking about today. He finally uh, decides to make this make this 
promised to himself, which is climb Mount Everest. But of course, remember, he's got no legs. He's got, he's got, he's been amputated below his knees, uh, both legs, right? Crazy. And of course, uh, there are certain bans by the authorities saying that people who are blind and people who are um, legless uh, or amputees cannot climb because it's a hazard, of course, to them and also hazard to other climbers, of course. Under-experienced or le- leisure climbers can pay whatever and go and climb and be a hazard to other people and to the guides in the Sherpas because they're not well-trained or acclimatized, but they have money. But I'm not complaining here because you know what? Sometimes when other people make an excuse for you saying, all blind people, visually impaired, not allowed to climb. I'm like, you know what? I really wanted to, but there's a ban. But of course, every time there is that, there are these people who are the overachievers in the disabled community, right? I wouldn't say community, quote unquote, but people are like, I'm going to, and it, it ends up becoming a biopic, right? Which makes us look like shit. The people who are willing to just take it and say, you know what? Fuck it. I tried, but there's a rule. But you have these overachievers and this guy, I wouldn't call him an overachiever, but very ambitious to say the least. So, a long story short, which of course has already become long, he teams up with his fellow um, members from the uh, Gurkha, Gurkha Regiment. I think one of them is an SAS commander or captain, whatever the, the title is. And man, he climbed up Mount Everest. And crazy story, you can check it out. Don't I, I, You can just check out legless climber or amputee, double amputee climber, whatever the, the, the keyword that suits you without you making um, too much of a political correct statement or incorrect statement. Um and apparently there's a lot of conditions which were bad. Like he was stuck at the base camp for 18 days. There was barely like, you know, freezing conditions. Like they saw, he saw bodies coming down, dead bodies, not live bodies, but dead bodies not coming down on their own, but being carried down. That would be crazy, right? Like um, that would be the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Kind of, yeah, he fought the authorities. He said, yeah, they lifted the ban on people who can't, uh, without legs climbing. And then finally he sees like dead bodies walking back down. And he's like, yeah, I think, you know, this is a bit much. I've seen war. I've lost my legs. I've fought the authorities. I've gone on uphill battle. I've overcome my drinking. I've overcome my depression. And eh, But dead bodies, uh, white walkers, a eh, bit much. But it didn't happen. It was dead bodies being dragged back. So finally he goes and apparently there was horrible conditions. Oxygen was running low. And he made it. And I'm really bad at telling dramatic stories because that's pretty much it. He made it and he's now... Yeah, he's a hero in everyone's eyes and I'm so glad that his story had a good ending and he's able to overcome his demons and I wouldn't say uh, stand up strong but definitely, you know, head held high, uh, be extremely proud of what he's done and if you're listening, I hope to have you on the podcast but also I salute you, sir, for the... I think, you know, of course, for serving whatever you did serve and for the thing. But for this particular story that you turned around for yourself, I think that is uh, something which a lot of people take time, but I think time is irrelevant. But as long as you can do it for yourself and as long as you can kind of get yourself through the motions, get yourself back up and get yourself through all of it. And whatever the end goal is, whether it's climbing the tallest mountain in the world, whether it's giving up a coping mechanism, whether it's being nicer to yourself or whether it's just getting out of bed and saying, fuck it, what's life? What life is worth living. I think all these things matter. So yeah, if you're one of these people in your own right who's come through something, whether it's a, a loss of a part of your body, whether it's a, loss of, a profound loss of someone you loved, I think just coming from a place where you see no point in in in, in, in experiencing life to turning that around to making sense of something and to kind of finding it in you 
to value what you have. I think that's a huge thing. And I salute all of you who've been through that in in your own capacity. So I, I didn't mean it to go down that path. I think it was supposed to be some kind of story which I was, um, you know, paraphrasing from what I read. But hey, you know what? It's nothing, nothing wrong with being nice once in a while. Anyhow, let me move from the person whose um, story I spoke about to the story I have today, which is the conversation with my guest, who's Mr. Jamie Mason Cohen, a teacher to a business leader. Well, what a story it is, right? Jamie and I had fun conversation talking about the things he's learned, the things he learned about resilience after he was fired in his early, early 40s from his teaching job, the way he kind of made something for himself and then went on to help people build resilience and understand what it means to kind of navigate situations which you're not prepared for when you're sort of out on your back. What do you do? And yeah, really, really fun chat with Jamie. And of course, he talks about his experience at Saturday Night Live and what he learned from the people turning around such quick projects on a regular basis. Well, one of the nice things which uh, he told me about was this idea of nothing is ever fully ready when it comes to a project or a sketch or a business plan but the ones which are good ones are the ones that you're able to take out there and work with and go and he's got a lot of of course principles he applies to the business uh, ideas and the business plans he's working on uh, he shares a few of them with me but we share a lot of stories we share a lot of back and forth and it uh, honestly is a fun chat and i'm sure you'll enjoy listening to it so without further delay Here's my conversation with Mr. Jamie Mason Cohen. Enjoy, and as always, thanks for joining me. Till next week, goodbye, God bless, take care of yourselves. Cheers. Mr. Jamie Mason Cohen, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm wonderful, Sandeep. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You know, it's always um, nice to talk to someone when we're on different ends of the day because it's it's very interesting to have a morning perspective and an evening perspective kind of meet at a common place, right? Because it uh, not 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 to make it sound like we're um, too sort of far apart, but really speaking, like I, I've done conversations in the morning with people. I've done conversations with people in the evening. The energy is different. The outlook on life is different, and I really. Uh, enjoy that in some way because it kind of truly makes us feel like we are connecting um, in our own time but also in a different time if that makes any sense yeah well thanks for asking me to speak in the morning time where I where I am in Toronto Canada mm-hmm. because I'm a morning person <laughs> excellent excellent now I've I, I realized now um, as I told you before we started recording like you know I, I have 11 month old she's going to be a year soon and I was never a morning person. When I used to do stand-up, I used to wake up at odd hours. I never really had a day to look forward to. But now, uh, maybe even before she was born, I started appreciating the day for what it was and not just living for those three hours which would uh, precede the comedy routine or the stage time and then post that, hanging out with comedians, getting, you know, shit-faced and then eating bad food, coming back late. But um, I'm really um, interested to... um, talk to you about your journey because you've done uh, and continue to do a lot of very very impactful work and interesting work but um, one word that strikes me while we we start this conversation is the word resilience and yes of course you you kind of help people in various contexts of resilience when it comes to business resilience but in 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 a world where we are 
seemingly getting more comfortable with living and taking things for granted when it comes to at least material consumption and of course i can't speak for the whole world because there are a lot of people in extreme poverty in extreme hardship in in war war stricken countries but at least in where i live things to see things seem to be getting easier where you live in canada things seem to be getting more comfortable but still it seems that there is a do, a dip in people being able to overcome challenges and what are your thoughts on that well in my study and practice of resilience because we might get into it but i mean i have been laid off at no uh i didn't do anything wrong i was a uh, uh, i was told i was a model i was an award winning teacher mm. and i was laid off in my early 40s and i started teaching resilience shortly after because i realized that in order to become what i espouse or what i am preaching or practicing mm. i need to show people what that looks like and yeah. um I moved from a teacher to becoming a leadership coach and consultant with no connections anywhere on the globe. I didn't know how this worked and in a couple of years I built up a business mm. that continues to grow. So the two things that I have found to be most helpful both in practice and the data backs this up by people like Angela Duckworth who's one of the world's leading experts on resilience and my own studies and practice is progress and well-being. So we can expand on that if you like but of course yeah I'd like I that. focus now on progress am I moving forward every day even today what am I doing toward my goals how am I being a better dad husband uh and friend as well as a a coach and also my mental well-being so am I prioritizing my mental health uh because I think many of the leaders I work with sometimes are so focused on that goal that end result that outcome that they neglect what they need for their heart what they need for their soul what they need for their spirit you know that 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 that's sounds like a lovely couple of things to focus on but do the two of them which is you know moving forward constantly um if if i can take that uh, to the next point being improving on yourself or becoming a better version of yourself uh is that contradictory to well-being because i feel the, the the constant need to improve or become better or do things better become a better version of that role a better father a better husband a better friend uh at the same time maintaining your level of well-being is that uh, is that a recipe for stress have you or how do you manage that yeah yeah point well taken I think it's a difference between being content and complacent. Right. So I can be content with who I am and my well, and my state of being and being okay with being good enough as I am now. Mm. But I'm not going to be complacent that I am done and mm-hmm. this is it. And so I see it as more of in if the word best in terms of semantics is limiting or sounds maybe even very north american like i've got to be the best mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. it's more along the lines of uh victor frankl the brilliant one of the brilliant minds of uh psychiatry and psychology of the 20th century and beyond said to paraphrase 
mental health is the tension between where I am and where I want to be. Mm. And to me, there, that tension is actually a healthy tension as long as it's not overextended and then it, be, can, then it can become what you say or how I interpret what you said, a liability. Right. And that's, that's such an interesting thing for you to face at a, you know, many people in their 40s, I just turned 40, uh, when, you, when you kind of are um, sort, of, sort of slotted into this midlife crisis and in society, people are like, oh, you know, you have, typically a person in, in whose 40s had 15, 16 years of work um, and they kind of have probably have a family. I don't want to sort of stereotype, but um, and, and, and for you, when you go from uh, who were you teaching? What, what, what age of children were you teaching in, in? Was it high school, middle school? High school. Right, so you're, you're, you're teaching young or going to be young adults. and In fact, I, th- I feel 15, 16, 17 year olds are almost like, what, 30 year olds in the 90s, right? They know more. <laughs> they seem to be uh, emotionally a lot more aware, or at least that's the, that's the notion that they put out. Uh, so what was that like? Because it's quite a world in itself, right? Being a teacher in a high school where you're prepping these kids to go out into either university or maybe occupational uh, programs or maybe just into into the real world, quote unquote. So for you, when you're, I wouldn't say comfortable, but you kind of immersed yourself in this environment and suddenly to to get this notice that you're no longer required or no longer have this job, um, what was the initial kind of outlook you had to towards society or maybe was it was it like a, a sense of being betrayed well the the school closed down and so even though i had a tenure which means i was supposed to if i wanted to continue to work there for as long as i wanted um i had taught there for nine years as a large private school in ontario the province i work in mm-hmm. and so anybody who was nine years or below in terms of the tenure list was cut immediately so I saw it as a blessing. I think that was where mindset people were coming up to me and uh, I had been featured in magazines. I Ted Education and Huffington Post named me the most innovative teacher in North America. Uh, there is an award and I'm not saying that to brag. It just was like I never I thought I would be doing this for a long time. And uh, and I and I really liked it in many ways. Yeah. I loved having an impact. And I don't think it's a cliche that when teachers say almost on a billboard, uh, if you can change one child's life, you know, you've changed the world. I really believe that. And yeah. I touched many children's lives over 13 years of being a professional educator, both in North America and Toronto and public and private and in Malaysia. I taught in Malaysia for a year with students also high school and university level, you know, who came from very different backgrounds than I grew up in. So I learned as much from them as they learned from me. So that being said, when the school closed down and my colleagues ran up to me and some of them, (laughs) maybe some of them were happy to see me go. And they said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. This is not so unfair. This is awful. What are you going to do? And I had some idea, some inkling, some intuition about what I wanted to do because I'd planted a seed for about three or four years before that. But I kept my mouth shut because I think sometimes when you have big goals or dreams that are a little bit out of the mainstream within a particular group of people, it's better to just do it and Mm. not expend that energy explaining yourself and getting a blank stare or a stoic expression. So I just said, I don't know yet, a bit of a white lie. I'm going to, you know, just 
gather my thoughts and take a few months. It was just before the summer and figure it out. So that was my starting place. I love this, but I saw it as a blessing because as much as I like teaching within those walls of a school, I felt it was a little bit limiting. I still wanted to teach, but I wanted to teach on a bigger scale, meaning impact even more people and in different ways because my creative mind is a little bit uh, sporadic and diverse in my interests. Um, it's the, in some ways, a renaissance spirit. So I was teaching English mm-hmm. for that entire time. So there's only so many ways you can talk about Pygmalion, George Bernard Shaw's <laughs> Pygmalion, and only so many times you can talk about Hamlet, this, this, <laughs> and Macbeth, these violent novels, you know, uh, that, uh, that, that my head was spinning after a decade of doing it and talking about the hero's journey. I find that very interesting how there's still, you know, these classics or so-called classics, like, you know, whether it's the, uh, I mean, for, for me in school, it was uh, Merchant of Venice and then it was Hamlet. And, um, you know, of course, in, in, in earlier classes, we had to read Mark Twain. And yeah, some of them, I still go back and read them. And I'm like, who prescribes these, right? Who who puts these in the curriculum? Because um, there are a couple of things I want to talk, talk to you about, like, um, one, you know, one person I really admired uh, listening to when he spoke was Sir Ken Robinson. I'm sure as an educator, you've come across his work and his, his talks. And one thing I loved that he said is the education system is great at educating the creativity out of children. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because there, there are these, th- these, these things that are, especially in English, which are seemed uh, to be presented as the standard of English, right? Whether it's the Shakespearean uh, novels or whether it's Dickens or these these so- so-called classics, which were taught at a certain time in England and then passed on, and these school boards then passed it on to other children. And um, it's it's so weird because it kind of I'm not saying it's not good. Some of them are really well written, but it almost creates this sense of if you don't get it, there's something off with you, right? And that, I find that interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea, I, I was a big fan of Sir Ken Robinson, too, who unfortunately mm-hmm. passed away not so long ago. I think last year, it was very sad to hear, yeah, yeah. Very, very sad to hear. And um, that's whereas when I became a parent, I made a pact with my wife, who is also a teacher, who's been a teacher for over 20 years, a department head mm-hmm. in, a, in a public school where, around here, mm-hmm. that no matter what the school offers, we're going to make sure that we're going to encourage our kids to find their own creative paths. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example, and this is not about you know talking to be a proud dad, although I am. My son uh, decided that he wanted to start a business. Uh, he's 11. And so <laughs> in our house, we have lots of creative activities, and there's little bracelets, these little bracelets you can make on your own. And he got together with another boy his age, and they created a logo... Uh, things that you and I might not have thought about at 11 in a different era before the internet, but he instantly created a logo, a name, a brand, and put together, they're putting together a website. They've already sold $150 worth of these bracelets <laughs> at great. 2 to $5 each to their classmates. And he was up past his bedtime. And my wife and I said, how are we going to say no to this till 10 o'clock negotiating with his partner about distribution uh, costs? <laughs> And I thought, wow, you know, so it's it's up to parents, I think, as well to find ways to look at what their kids are interested in and 
encourage that type of creativity and that innovation. It doesn't yeah. always have to have the pressure on the teachers to cultivate that. I think it cultivates at home. And that's a beautiful point you raise right now. There's a lot of pressure on the school system, right? People say there's a glaring gap in the way education is being approached. The entire curriculum is outdated. It's the industrial revolution that it's catering to. And now it's no longer relevant. And, um, and in India, of course, an emerging, eco- emerging economy where there are a huge number of uh, people who a vast discrepancy also there are people who are, can't even afford a basic education to people who are yeah. going to ivy leagues post high school uh and i i you know i i'm i'm at that point in my life where we have to consider preschool in the next couple of years and we just sort of put up put a thing and the conversation is just very sort of like oh it's it's about being seen in the right school it's the elitist elitist approach it's like oh which curriculum is it the waldorf is it montessori is it whatever not whatever and and then it's and just to understand as a teacher how much um you know because there's so much in, in, that the school does but uh, for someone who taught students how much of what they learn versus other roles does the school play because is it just about the the courses or the classes they take or is there is that just a small percentage of why kids need to go to school from my experience in schools and one of my jobs was essentially helping kids socialize within various clubs and committees because i was aside from being an english teacher i was the director of student activities mm-hmm. and so parents would come to me and they would ask these types of questions in their own way which is my son or daughter doesn't know anybody how do mm-hmm. i get them involved how do they make friends and making friends and connections not not connections necessarily business connections although later on definitely within schools that can help it's how do i approach someone how do i make conversation how do i what do at recess or at a break what does my interaction look like on the soccer pitch or yeah. uh you know uh, do i engage in gossip or do i walk away i find that school today will be more judged by how it helps children build these social connections in the age of chat gpt and ai mm. because that is something that can't be replicated that human connection that bond is i think what's going to differentiate people in the future those who have high emotional intelligence those who can have a conversation like we're having uh where it's a give and take those individuals need basic competencies but what's going to elevate them to another tier and this could be overly optimistic or naive depending on the country uh despite class or positioning of whether they were fortunate enough to have parents who were wealthy or uh, had ins it's those individuals who are going to have the leg up in the future and schools can help that if they help regulate an environment where children are given opportunities and feedback and advice on how to build those social relationships that's not that's something which is so good to hear because you know otherwise it's so focused on outcome right the academic um yeah. the, the, the academic competition the courses the coursework the results the grades the marks the, the 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 competitive levels they have to perform at it's it's creating a lot of stress and people of course will automatically point to social media saying oh kids are being bullied the kids can't get respite when they come back home but what you just said makes so much sense because uh 
if they're able to have a human connection i think that's something that is so important right because that grounds them back to the reality that there is more to my tiktok page or my instagram page which a lot of parents i think have a responsibility in 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 kind of reinforcing or in 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 telling their children right like listen go to school to make sense of what it means to be a little person right talk to people yeah. uh, as opposed to tell me what you learned how much did you learn why didn't you learn this why are you great solo which is the the entire narrative is different it shifts from the child going you know what i'm enjoying school because today someone uh bullied me or someone said something insulting or t- yesterday someone gave me a hug or whatever it could be but instead of that it's like okay i need to go back and repeat to my parent what i learned today and the pressure is so much in the in the latter statement right yeah and it's not to take away from the paramount importance of children go to school to gain an education like you said uh it could be an education with practical skills uh, i would call those horizontal skills and leadership framework and the leadership terminology mm-hmm. horizontal <clears throat> skills would be what are the practical skills they need to be an independent autonomous person in the world at, yeah, one day so uh what are the competencies they need but i'm ta- we're talking a-, a little bit here about actually horizontal leadership or horizontal skills which is a raise of consciousness mm-hmm. and when you teach children one thing you said and thank you for bringing that up i was actually talking about building social connections you brought up bullying twice and i have found at least in ontario this is a an area that schools neglect it's a blind spot it's for some reason i don't know if it's still taboo it shouldn't be but how do you deal with bullies because no matter how well a child eats how well how how you know extraordinary gifted they 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 are how hard they work if they walk into school and they don't feel safe because someone has posted something online making fun of their weight or or calls them stupid or or whatever that might be when a child doesn't feel safe they go into adulthood with a lack of trust and eventually can develop into trauma and and more so i would like to see i would say globally because i saw this overseas as well not just in ontario uh there is a lack of support within schools and training for teachers to identify bullying to stop it and to provide an environment where all kids even though that's tricky because teachers don't have eyes in the back of their head it's not 1984 the novel but where teachers can provide the proper support for children and parents and teachers are on the same page and aligned because i would often say to parents you and i are partners we're on the same page i want what you want for your child mm-hmm. so let's find a way to work together to provide your child with the with the most complete inspiring and effective however adjectives experience not just an education of living where they can't wait to get up in the morning but it starts with removing not just physical barriers to safety but also emotional and mental barriers and correct me if i'm wrong but bullying never stops right the person who's bullying is coming from a place of either insecurity or perceived sense of dominance and if it goes uncorrected for the person who's bullying then it the nature of bullying changes but they continue that behavior through life um uh, and since you now are helping people with 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 leadership consulting 
it's the same kind of narcissistic, if you want to call it, or ego-driven yes. behavior where yes. those make for the worst leaders. I mean, not to bring up Donald Trump, but that's a bang-on example in my eyes of someone who's just driven by ego, who's a bully and has always got his way. And I see more and more of world leaders who are coming to power with that particular thing. I don't want to go down politics, but... It's that kind of behavior that is being celebrated by bullies and recognized by bullies. And what you do at school doesn't stop at school. You're right. And you mentioned narcissistic bullying. And Mm -hmm. I'm not on TikTok a lot, but I really admire and I'm surprised how effective TikTok is if you Google how to deal with a narcissistic bully or how to deal with narcissistic abuse, the advice from experts on there, therapists, people, I don't know where they get the information, but there's a lot of patterns and consistency is very helpful. Hmm. And I don't see the level, not even close of support that TikTok, whether you're in India or Toronto, offers kids or adults on how to deal with bullies. And I'm finding that narcissism, uh, a a classic narcissist, is now actually that terminology is replacing what we grew up hearing as bully. It's the same idea in some respect. And not all bullies are narcissists and not all narcissists are bullies. But in the context of school, to teach children about how to identify narcissistic behavior without pretending being pseudo-psychologists, but seeing certain behaviors and realizing it's not about them. Like it's not, it's, it's about the abuser and it's a little cliche, but it's true. Hurt people hurt people. Uh, why? I don't know. We're not, we're not here to talk therapy either, but it's to give kids the tools of when a narcissist abuses you or has a smear campaign where they, it's another word for talking behind your back or uses you as supply Supply means they're looking for someone to validate their existence and they turn outward to, and they go after empathetic people. They, uh, they go after kind and sensitive people more than people like them and they attack them and they're baiting them into a response. And I'm sure the viewer, the listeners, just like you and I, have experienced those people in the past or the present. And if I knew these things when I was my children's age, and I haven't talked about this specifically yet because they're a little bit young, but I will when they're teenagers. When you see people doing this, you can identify and go, oh, there it is. I now know how to respond. It might be difficult to not take the bait because narcissists or bullies want you to scream and get mad. And they go, oh, they judge you on your reaction because that's manipulation. I'm going to judge you on your reaction and totally ignore and want you to forget or scapegoat you or gaslight you, which is wanting you to to not acknowledge that anything happened. I'm going to judge you on your reaction. I'm going to tell everybody that you're going crazy because look at your reaction. Instead of taking any ownership over what instigated or what initiated or triggered that reaction in the first place. So if children know this when they're at 12, 13, 14, when now with social media, it's worse than ever. We never had a generation totally exposed to bullying or narcissism, not just in person, but online. And if we, it's our jobs as parents and educators to help children identify it and deal with it. 
And that to me is in some ways even more important, even though this is a bit controversial, than what they learn in school. Because if they go in, like I said, and they have food, they've slept, they um, have good parents, and they go into an environment, they are not going to hear a thing the teacher says if the person beside them they know knew just wrote a horrible thing about them last night and they don't know how to respond. So we can't teach them until we really help them deal with the world around them. And earlier the consequences were like you might get a bloody nose on the playground or you get might get your lunchbox stolen or you might get something which might have, might in today's context seem petty but now the the stakes are higher. It's either ending up in someone hanging themselves or committing suicide or someone taking a gun and mowing down kids in a school. So it's it it's extremely important to address this. But do you feel on the counter to this there is uh because you've from teaching high school children to now adults and common themes being insecurity and ego driven behavior, narcissistic behavior are across age groups in different forms they manifest but they are there and of course as the years go on and it goes unrecognized or uncorrected it gets worse but what um how 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 do you instill a sense of resilience from a young age now some people would say just to play a counter to what you just said hey you know what i got bullied my dad got bullied come on put a put your chin up and take it on the chin or whatever right but how much of that is important versus you know oh i'm going to protect my child so so there is a balance clearly uh, but from your experience how much of resilience meshes in with protection to make these children who will be future young adults and future adults who are in the society shaping the way uh, interactions are determined well there's a fine line there sandeep so if a child for example uh i'll use my kids as examples because these are relevant and real and authentic my daughter went out uh she tried out for an art school and only 10% of kids make it mm-hmm. and so my wife and i said well this is a good experience because a lot of life is rejection and failure and no matter what you are going into you're going to be rejected hundreds of times. Yeah. So we're talking about resilience is some people don't like the definition of the the speed in which you bounce back from rejection or failure. Uh I've heard people say I don't like the word bounce back. Okay. Uh mm-hmm. the the manner, the way you deal with rejection and and failure and how you frame that moving forward. Uh as a, you know, some people say re, you know uh, rejection is a redirection. Okay, mm-hmm. and I, li- I like that one. So, yeah. however you say it, there's a big difference in my mind as an educator and as a parent. Of my, da- so my daughter w- stayed up late at night. She she handed in her form. You had to do a written form, and she also had to go. And it's quite nerve wracking for a nine year old with no prep. You had to go and you had to create a project on the spot in front of a group of adults taking notes about you and watching every move. And that was going to be the judgment on whether or not she gets into this private school, this uh, this new school next yeah. year. So we, my wife and I had a talk and we said, how as teachers and parents, what are we going to say if she doesn't get in? Right. Like this is a, could be a first significant rejection. So we talked about it and we said, you know what, we're going to let her feel the feeling of feeling rejected if she gets that. We're going to have a little bit of a conversation for a nine year old, not speaking to an adult. Keep it simple. But look. You have every right to feel a little sad. Uh, this happens, but we're not going to protect her 
from, first of all, not trying out just in case she doesn't get rejected or protecting her too much after she falls. Mm. It's okay for kids to fall. That's hard for me because I am a bit overprotective as a parent, but it's okay for kids to fall, to get uh, dumped uh, in a relationship, um, but being there for them and ask them if they're okay and 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 acknowledge their feelings. The worst thing you can do for a child, and I'm very adamant about this, is deny their right to feel the way they feel. You shouldn't feel that way. I've seen adults do this. I've seen um, adults do this to, to kids, and I've told parents, don't do that. You're going to scar them. Yeah. Allow kids to feel sad and say to them, it sounds like you're feeling frustrated. I am feeling frustrated. That's okay. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm angry. It's okay to be angry. I know. That is acknowledging it. That's it. We were also, but before we were talking about bullying. No, a parent needs to protect their child from bullying. And that's when it's not being a helicopter parent. I think that's BS between you and I. When mm-hmm. parents say, I was bullied. Oh, well, let me see how well adjusted you are. Let <laughs> me see what kind of a parent you are. Let's look at your blind spots. As a coach, I could pick them up in about five minutes without even any data, just by their presence. So people who say I was bullied and they get a lot of likes on Instagram because they say, Kids are, you know, uh, too soft today. You know, I was bullied. I was, a, I had an alcoholic father. Oh, mm. please, you're a, you're probably a mess, and yeah. you've done damage to the people around you by by again. The word is gaslighting. None of that matters. No, it matters. So why repeat what previous generations did to you? You can take the good of previous generations, which was, you know, they had strength of spirit. They had excellent resilience through wars, world wars, and devastation, and hunger, and poverty. But you can also learn from those generations because a lot of men in particular, but women too, uh, at least this is what I've seen, were horrible at expressing their feelings. They just let it, they repressed their feelings, they didn't acknowledge their children's feelings, and their children, the adults today, suffer for it. So bullying... I would suggest stepping in and do not let your kids get bullied. Be a proactive parent. Also teach your kids self-advocacy to stand up to bullies. You might have to punch a bully. I told my son, my son does Taekwondo and he's uh, almost at a black belt. When he was a little guy, he was mobbed by kids at school and he kicked. He's got a hard kick. He kicked uh, one kid and the kid fell over and hurt himself. And he came home and he told me and I said, good for you because they all scattered. Nice. They all scattered. And he still brings it up. And I said, has anyone picked on you since? Nope. I wonder why. So that is advocacy. But if it's letting kids fall, re- rejection is redirection and allow them to find their own way as well. No, it's beautifully said because I think there's this sort of false placed aggression, right? Like, oh, um, go online and complain about everything. And, you know, the, the same kid who got kicked his mom probably be like, my kid got kicked, but no one wants to ask why did he get kicked because he bullied someone. And as a result, so as you said, it's these these people who are, you know, who are aggressors then play the victims. And that's the problem. And that's part of narcissism. Mm-hmm. They they flip it. It's called blame shifting. Mm-hmm. You got to be careful about that, even if it's your kid. Yeah. Before, before uh, the teacher's not always wrong and other kids are not always wrong. That blame shifting is 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 a manipulative tool of a bully. Well, they did something to me. Well, let's make sure they really did something and hear both sides. 
Mm, that's <laughs> tough as a teacher, right? Because that it's a balancing is. act. Yeah. Yes. Well, but I, do you see this behavior in 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 in, in adult uh, life as well? Because uh, there seems to be a uh, path that we are on right now as adults in our. Uh, I'm saying people who were born in the 80s and 90s. And of course, there are the younger generations joining the workforce and we have uh, all these debates and have these walkouts and uh, things where people are like, I don't agree with the philosophy of the company or I don't like what content they put out or I don't like their practices. And as a result, just mass walkouts and then they're just you know, publicly defaming the CEO or saying, you know, let's cancel them. Maybe cancel culture or something. Uh, which could probably capture what I'm trying to get at. It, it, and w- But that's a clear symbol of lack of resilience, right? It's like taking the word offense to the next level, saying, oh, I don't agree with it, so it doesn't need to exist. So w- what is your take on that? And how do you kind of uh, maneuver your, your, your coaching uh, practice around that? When you look at woke culture, woke culture to me is extreme. Mm-hmm. So I see instances where it almost becomes the mob, right? So woke culture is one extreme where people might take offense to something or take a leader out of context, put that online and make one thing someone said, one line or one word, and that as if that defines their 25-year career. So I don't agree with that. And I think we all have to be aware of how damaging that can be toward authenticity with leaders because if they're afraid or you and I are afraid of one thing we say and it's edited or taken out of context that we're going to lose our careers or we're going to be humiliated in front of the world and those we care about, there's something significantly wrong with our social media landscape, which perpetuates this type of world culture. And so it that stunts being ideas, said, right? Just to add to that. Say it again? It stunts ideas, the propagation of ideas. Yes. And you have a comedy background. I worked many years ago for a famous comedy network uh, and production company in New York. And I see with comedian friends and acquaintances, some have even either left the profession altogether. They're not working in comedy or they feel that comedy is dead Mm. because they can't really make fun of anyone, even with tongue in cheek without it coming across as offensive to this generation and being under the threat of being canceled. So I think like anything, there needs to be balance. On the other hand, uh, I, I think when a leader is called out for narcissistic behavior, abusive behavior, you mentioned Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump is, a, is, a, is, a very, is still a relevant example. He might even run for the, for the head of his party again. Yeah. Donald Trump is an exception, but he's not that much of an exception. So there's a narcissistic, abusive boss uh, that is someone who has gone to the highest heights of his country's political power and yeah. even on an economic and social in a class in the class structure. And he has those attributes of the bully, of the narcissist to the nth degree. Yeah. So. It's hard to explain why in, in the U.S. culture that would be celebrated by 75 million people who voted for him. Um, and even people I know who I have love and respect for were pro-Trump and my mouth dropped because I, I tried not to judge their values because in other areas of their life, their values seem to be in alignment. 
because I'm not a Trump fan yeah. at all. And so when a younger generation looks too soft because the quiet quitting or these other terms where they just walk away from one piece of abuse, I will ask leaders who I work with. So what I do is I have a series of workshops on communication and creative leadership and how to have difficult conversations. I will ask them what what is their means of communicating with these younger people who they say in particular are oversensitive because I'm sensitive. I, I was diagnosed as being a highly sensitive person. Mm. So I am I have a heightened sense of uh, sense of people's tone, people's body language, how they're coming across. I was wired this way. I, I've, I've tried to push against it, but it's my blessing and could be a bit of a curse because it's so strong, my sense of feeling for uh, when people speak with me. So I'm in a good position <laughs> to help CEOs who don't have that emotional, uh, who are wired differently and are more very analytical, uh, not really in tune with their emotions or, or, or think emotions and, and energy is overdone and overthought of. I ask them, what's their tone of voice? Uh, the, uh, I like to say your, your tone speaks so loud, I can't hear what you're saying, which is a play on what Emerson said. So your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. Mm. And the, a few quick tips I would say to leaders who complain that young people are too sensitive, quit too easily, get too offended is before you blame them, look at how you're showing up and how you communicate. There are tools to do this. I use the Leadership Circles 360, which is one of the leading 360s in the world for leaders at any level, but formerly people have taken this, where you look at 18 competencies that make up the highly evolved or conscious leader, and you also look at reactive tendencies which have gotten you to where you are, like the Trumps of the world in the short term, but ultimately they will backfire for the most part in the long term. Not always, but in many cases, because you end up burning bridges and burning out. So I'll just end with, when it comes to the narcissist who never sees themselves as the narcissist, which is part of the problem, or, the, or, or someone complaining about these younger workers who are too soft, I would do a few things. I would check your tone. Mm. I would ask people, even though you might not want to hear that feedback, when I speak to you, do you feel I'm speaking in a manner that you feel comfortable with, that you're respond, responsive to, or do you feel I intimidate you or that it sounds like I'm reprimanding you in a day-to-day mm. -day conversational thing? People are not used to that question. And that actually shows high, more self-awareness than about 95% of leaders. I would also have regular conversations. These are quick conversations, check-ins where you ask people, how are they doing from one to 10, you could say, how are they getting along with people on their team? And you know, forbid asking this question, the highly evolved leader will say, how am I doing? Mm. How am I doing and how I'm communicating? And what my, are you clear on the vision and the purpose that I'm communicating? Right. These right. are the kinds of questions that will instantly bring you closer and disarm those oversensitive teammates who are not responding in the way that you want them to respond. But most leaders overlook that because they think that's too soft. Why should I have to do that? They should just be there to work because I'm paying them.
that doesn't work anymore. Clearly doesn't, yeah, yeah. So Jamie, you know, you were a teacher and of course now you are a consultant helping a lot of people, a lot of professionals. Now, you 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 spent this time at Saturday Night Live and I, and, and you 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 apply a lot of that in what you do today. Uh, now, being a comedian and working with other comedians, I know how sort of self-centered we all are and how important we think we are and what we have to say is really uh un- is is so invaluable that we think that we're really special i think uh comedians have that streak in them and very very rarely do you come across the benevolent comedian going you know what i'm humble and i will listen to other people's jokes because i think they have something better to say than me <laughs> very rarely so what did it teach you and what was that experience like because every comedian has heard about saturday night live and the sketches they put out and um the the, the i forget his name um the person who's the main guy lord uh, lord michaels lord michaels yes and yes. what a boat like a ship he runs and how that entire machine and of course there've been a lot of positives but a lot of other stuff that has come out about how it is again filled with a certain level of bullying where veterans get their sketches pushed forward there's a lot of joke stealing there's a lot of sketch stealing so i don't want you to sort of go down a path you don't want to but what was that experience like and how is that environmental sort of environment instrumental in shaping what you have to sort of put out when it comes to behavior and narcissism and bullying to a certain extent and also leadership well lorne michaels who's the executive producer and the founder creator of Saturday Night Live used to say the show was not ready because it was finished the show was ready because it was 11:30 on Saturday night mm. so with teams i use that as a metaphor for no matter what their challenges are no matter what their time frame is when their 11:30 comes on a project or finding a solution as imperfect as it is how are they going to show up what is mm. their 11:30 and i use that metaphor because the first thing that i learned at saturday night live and we'll only go through a few of these because i could i do i do uh four hour workshops on these different themes yeah. on a regular basis is urgency is paramount as a way to get things done uh mm. to move beyond procrastination to be productive and there's nothing surprising about it what surprised me and the data backs this up is that if you want your team to stop procrastinating or not just focus on outputs but outcomes which is one of the challenges i've helped teams with and output being busy work presentations meetings they're doing all kinds of stuff they're so busy but what's the outcome that the team really needs to achieve mm. at saturday night live there's a lot of money at stake there's people's jobs at stake there's ratings there's all these groups about 150 people in different departments running around new people coming in and out and yet the show has existed beyond your entire lifetime yeah. uh, about my entire lifetime 1975 yeah. so the first thing is that i learned productivity is often connected with a sense of urgency and a little bit of healthy stress that if you want to create a show that should take about a month in 3 days because that's the time frame they have before they start rehearsing you can't be a perfectionist you can't um n- not everything is going to be uh, come out the way you want you've just got to show up you and i today in this podcast we we did not prepare in a formal way 
but yeah. we've been preparing our whole life. Like yeah. all your cumulative experiences, all of my cumulative experience has come and it's aligned and it's merged in this conversation. So that's how people have to be on that show or they end up burning out very quickly. I had friends who burnt out, who became addicts. Um, some who I knew through other people passed away. And um, was it because of the show? No, it wasn't because of the show. It was because their lifestyle was they were going too fast and too hard. And so it's important that balance. It's important to have that balance. But in order to, to get things done, sometimes you need to lower the time frame between execution and beginning and just focusing on those outcomes, not just those outputs, getting very clear about what your outcome is. So that was the first big thing I learned. It's almost like you're saying that in that urgency, there's a sense of relaxation. You know what? Trust in yourself and let go. You've, you've worked for this. You know it innately that you have it. But it doesn't have to be the best product. But as long as there's a sense of cohesion, put it out there. Work on the next one. Yeah. Like you could have sent me all the questions that you did research on. And I could have sent you back all of my answers. And you could have edited them and said, talk about this and this. Would it have made this podcast that much better? Well, with two professionals, I would probably say no. Mm. It might shorten certain answers, but and it might What's be the fun in take that. It, yeah, but yeah, but there's not a sense of authenticity. So yeah. I'm all for pre uh, preparation, and that show is highly structured. And I say that's the second thing is, you know, you've got to love the process mm. because if you are just focused on results, results, results. Um, there's can be a lot of disappointment with the expectation of getting certain outcomes that you have in your mind. The process of Saturday Night Live was Sunday, people would be at home. They wouldn't be at work, but they would start thinking about what ideas I want to bring to the show. And not everyone was creating ideas, the makeup, the the sets. Yeah. The, but by Monday, everybody came in in the afternoon. Um, people didn't really work in the mornings there. They worked in the afternoons more than anything. And they stayed up until late into the night. On, on Tuesday, Monday, they would start bringing their ideas and figuring out who they're partnering with, writers and, and um, uh, the, the writers and these performers. And then the producers would be in Lauren Michael's office and they'd have this big bulletin board like behind me. I have all these different areas like these post-it uh, board notes and they'd be figuring out which, which uh, you know, per particular sketches they would have mm -hmm. as they would start coming in. And they would take 43 sketches by Tuesday night and... Uh, really uh, bring them down to about nine sketches after wow. doing a run through on, you know, on Thursday night. By Friday, they pretty much knew the show and they'd be changing it right up to showtime on Saturday. They'd still be writing and they'd still be changing things based on the political landscape. They'd be adding details for their cold opening political sketches. Yeah. And then they would go and have a party Saturday night, which was interesting to see all these famous people walking around and then they would crash probably on sunday they'd do nothing and then they would repeat it again so you need a, a certain level of resilience which is what we talked about to survive an environment like that and um, was there bullying yeah i, I don't want to go i don't usually go there but um there were some people who interpreted that environment as being extremely uh, hard on them yeah. Uh, I'm not going to use the word bullying, but also the leadership qualities that I saw within people there were exceptional. Yeah. I saw or I heard I, I met Chris Farley, the late comedian, before he passed away. That was my interview in 1997. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chris Farley 
was empathetic and he came and he sat down beside me uh, when he was guest hosting. It was three months before he passed away. And he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Jamie. And he goes, oh, who are you here to see? I said, I'm, I'm here to see Mr. Michael. He goes, oh, you're here to see the boss. And we ended up having a 20-minute conversation in the midst of the writer's room with all these legendary people on the wall like Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and John Belushi. And there I was talking with Chris Farley. And all my anxiety and my nerves about meeting Lorne Michaels for this meeting that I had called his office 25 times from my parents' basement where I was living after graduating from university. And there I was in front of Chris Farley. Lorne Michaels walks in and he says, hey, Chris. He goes, hey, what's up, Lorne? Hey, coach. And then Lorne looks at me, Lorne Michaels, had no idea who I was, even though it was the biggest moment of my life as a 22-year-old. And he says, um, I said, hi, I'm, I'm Jamie. I'm here to see you, sir. And he goes, right. No idea. And I ended up going into that meeting with Lorne Michaels, and I ended up talking to him about books, about life, about Toronto, where he's from, which probably helped me get the job. <laughs> and he asked me if I wanted to come work for him. And that took me on this four-year adventure working for the show. But it was Chris Farley, Sandeep, who really showed me what we talked about earlier, that psychological safety about welcoming me into that environment, into that culture. So I learned that from him. And that's how lovely is that, right? Because that entire interview with Lauren Michaels would have gone probably completely differently if you, if you hadn't warmed up and had a sense of, you know what, I've got someone. Maybe he didn't have your back, but he made you feel wanted. And that's so important. Yeah, he made me feel seen and heard in mm -hmm. a very short time. And he didn't need to be one of the most famous comedians in the world at that point, which he was. Um, but I felt on this subconscious level, when I reflect back, if I could feel seen with Chris Farley in front of me, who I've watched on TV for years, I can handle this next few minutes with Lorne Michaels. And that's exactly what happened. It was a quiet confidence that he instilled in me by projecting this warmth. And, and the how... studies show yeah, that, would, yeah, yeah uh, I was just going to say, Harvard Business Review did a study and they said, when you meet someone in a professional context, people think two things about you. Can I trust you? Can I respect you? Can I trust you? Can I respect you? And which one came first the majority of the time, over 60% of the time? It was trust. So the takeaway is you need to show people your warmth before you show them your competence. And that's what Chris Farley did. He didn't show me how great he was. He didn't, he didn't talk about himself, but he showed me warmth, which allowed me to show up as my best self shortly thereafter. I think you just answered the question I had, which was how important is humility when it comes to um, showing people the way or getting people to come over to your side, saying, believing in an idea that you have, um, because there are certain appearances that people think that they need to sort of put on to look like a leader, right? Whether it's suave or there's certain kind of like an air of nonchalance or an air of I'm better than you. But does that really matter? Or is it the true level of I'm accessible, I'm humble, and this is really who I am, and not as an act? Is that more important? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, humility, the way I would see that in leaders is being a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all. Mm. So the opposite of humility, I think, is arrogance. So an arrogant person, even based on the data of the leadership circle where they've looked at uh, participants, uh, leaders across the world is 
arrogance is a trait that's very hard to grow. It's the only trait where if you have high levels of arrogance, of being the know-it-all, of thinking there's nothing, you know, Sandeep, there's nothing you can teach me. And don't take this, uh, <laughs> and don't just edit this clip. This is in context. <laughs> it's, 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 it's taking on the role. You know, Sandeep, there's nothing you could possibly teach me. You know, I'm in my late 40s. I've lived all over the world. I'm literally closed off from any ideas because I know everything. And I have my narrative and I don't need the truth, and I don't need your perspective. Like, what could you possibly teach me? That's arrogant. The, yeah. the humble leader, and I've worked with them, it's so refreshing because they are not being evasive when they want to learn from you. They're quiet. They listen. I'll give you an example. Recently, I um, give these talks to business organizations around the world. It's the leading CEO advisory board group. I think in the world, it's called Vistage. Mm -hmm. And so these are high-level CEOs, meaning their companies are successful and uh, across the United States. There's about 1,100 of these groups, about 15 to 20 members. And it's, it, it's, there's a lot of vetting that goes into being allowed to be in these groups. It's like this, this club. And um, so I give these, these talks with them. So I was just in New York giving a talk. I won't mention his name, but it's a compliment if he happens to hear this. Um, and he was named the number one leader of these, they're called chairs of these groups. So the leader of the group is called a chair. So he was named the Vistage Chair of the Year. And he was also the best practice chair, which means he, he teaches these other leaders of leaders how to lead. So just like you and I are, are lifelong learners, I was like, I can't wait to work with this guy. Yeah. I, not just to give a presentation to his members. I want to see how he leads. How does he collaborate? What is he like? And the number one attribute and I'm happy you brought this up, that he exemplifies in the way he speaks, in the way he acts, in the, in the pre-call meetings before when we talk about it, during the event, after the event, is humility. Mm. He is just as interested in learning from me as I was learning from him. And he was about 20 years older than me, or give or take. He had incredible life experience in business and beyond, and yet... He was so open in any moment to be uh, receptive, to not think he knows, to admit when he didn't have everything figured out. I was completely enamored with that approach and inspired. That's what Brilliant. leaders do. And what a great ride it's been just from hearing what you've told me today. I mean, before we wind up, you know, you, you've met children who you've helped and who have, I'm sure, given you stuff that you've reflected on um, young adults to your own children, to your, you know, your, 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 your experiences with Saturday night live, working with all these comedians, people you looked up to people who helped you on this journey to, to constantly meeting different kinds of personalities, whether whatever their position or their income may be. What is the one thing? Uh, and I don't, you can, it doesn't have to be like a rapid fire thing. And what I mean is it, this, there needs to be, one or two or three things, uh, which has kept you uh, centered. So one or two things from these successful, well-known people. Not just that, just through your journey of trying different things, of some situations being forced to do certain things, forced to face certain decisions or certain circumstances. What have been some of the values or philosophies or certain uh, guiding principles, if you were going to call it, that have helped you uh, either stay in balance or 
stay grounded or just remind you to enjoy the life that you've been given. Albert Camus, the French uh, writer, said, in the midst of winter, I found in me an invincible summer. Mm-hmm. That line as a value and as a guide has helped me through challenging times. And to remind myself that even in a dark or difficult moment, there is an opportunity or seed of hope. I mentioned earlier, and I'll repeat, is your actions, when someone's actions, your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you're saying. So self-respect is watching people's actions, not just their words, and also living by that yourself is it's lovely if you have a way with words to uh, impress upon someone your intention, but ultimately action means more than what you say when it comes to your relationships. And finally, I would say that nothing really compares to leading with kindness and empathy. Um, it might be overstated, but um, the world we live in, there it's it's complicated, it's volatile, it's ambiguous, and it can be confusing at times, even for adults. But ultimately, if we start from a place of kindness, empathy, and just genuine sincerity, then we can let go of trying to control everything else. That's beautiful. Because I think that is such a human um, right or essential human feeling that we kind of disguise or we kind of we we kind of we we want to show that kindness because sometimes it's taken out of context and it's it's taken advantage of. But it's something that we're all born with, and sadly, sometimes it's either educated out of us or it's conditioned out of us. But it's there inherently and. Um, thanks for bringing that to everyone's attention so thanks Jamie it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you and getting to know you and to share ideas and hear your experiences in life and your position on where things are and um, yeah congratulations on everything you've done for yourself and uh, really appreciate you being here today Thank you, Sandeep. And I'm going to mention that as fascinating as I researched you to be, although it was your podcast interviewing me, you demonstrated the final thing I'll say, which is the most worldly, humble, intriguing people that I've met, and now you'd be considered one of them, is curiosity. And so the watch how people ask questions because they're often the ones who have the most wisdom is those who question with depth, authenticity, and presence. And you have that. So thank you. Oh, that's that's one of the nicest things I've heard. I, and I really mean that because I've always been driven by a need to know the answers, right? And I think many of us are driven by needing to know. And I want to just say this because it, it's very kind that you mentioned that and I really am um, touched by what you said because 
something I've told myself is just ask the right questions and not literally on this podcast, but generally and uh, more to life as well, because the answers out there, you can ask the questions that suit you and you can always find the answers that suit that question. But if the questions are good, I think the answers <laughs> will help. And you mentioned early on in our conversation that, you know, when you had this plan, but you didn't really let let out what it was when you were as a teacher, you had the need to sort of teach and spread your ideas to a larger group. Um, a friend recently who lost his wife, uh, I met him after a year and he said, you know, when you project what you want, your desires to the universe, it seems like you might get it or might not. But you know how small and inconsequential and how shallow those desires are because you're preventing the universe from giving you what you truly deserve. Wow. And, and I found that such a powerful statement, the way he said it. It just sometimes, you know, you have this moment going, whoa. Because it's it's true, you ask for God, you ask God for things, you ask people for things. I want this job, I want this, I want this from life. But if you can truly just open yourself up to what the universe has for you, then you look back going, wow, what a ride. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's and a I, great place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's brilliant. I, I really uh, thank you for what you said just now and for everything you've done. And I hope you continue doing what you're doing and I hope we can stay in touch and um, yeah, meet over a beer in Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I'd welcome that. Well, thanks, Sandeep. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate it. Take care. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.